0: Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently finishing up our sermon series in Jubilee. And this time we're talking about a very fun topic. We're going to talk about our final hope. And Jubilee as it relates to the end of days or end of times. You see, we've been talking about Jubilee both as its uh, original uh, written intention in Leviticus, how it was a land code, and how it was a code that drew people back to what God had given them or intended them to have. Right? So He intended them to have their freedom because He brought them out of slavery from Egypt. And so every uh, seven to fifty years, depending on how you read it, I believe it's every fifty years, all slaves would be freed, and also the land would be renewed every fifty years and brought back to its original owners, the ones that God had originally given it to. Then we talked about how. God allowed the people of Israel to recognize that this concept was bigger than they had originally understood it to be. So whenever he was speaking through the prophets, we began to hear about how this concept of Jubilee was bigger than just Israel and its land, and that God was going to do something to bring back his people, to restore them to himself fully. He wasn't just going to release them from the bonds of slavery that they were physically in, but he would release them from other bonds of slavery as well. And then we see Jesus... Proclaim the year of Jubilee at the beginning of his mission. Proclaim freedom to everyone. And we begin to see that there's this bigger theme that weaves through. And you'll see this a lot of times as you look at themes through scripture. They come up over and over again. And they point to something bigger and greater than they themselves are talking about at first. And so we're going to talk about this concept of redemption. This concept of restoration or renewal and how it relates not just to Israel and how Israel related to each other, or not just Israel and how it related to the nations around it, but how the people of the world relate to the world itself. So we're going to start really far back, just, you know, pretty far back. We're going to start in the beginning, okay? So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to start there. And we're going to end in Revelation. You're welcome. We're skipping through a couple parts, though. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So one thing I want to start with is we can remember this. Just keep this in the back of your mind, because it will come up at the end. But whenever God first created everything, when he started the process of creation, he created, and what he started with was this blank, this blank piece of world that he's going to work with and there was darkness across it and it was filled with water and it was chaotic he created that it wasn't something that existed before him and he's bringing order to he started it right and then he begins to bring some order to it and the first thing he says is let there be light and there was light right real quick just remember It started out dark, and it started out uh, with the deep or the sea and covering everything. And as God creates, he brings order to this beginning thing that he had made. And so he brings order by bringing light out of the darkness. He brings order by bringing land out of the sea. He brings order by placing the sun and the moon to create day and night. He starts adding in. Uh, animals and plants and things of that nature, and then he creates people, and he places us into this garden, right? So we see this God bringing together into existence everything, and then from that lump of what he had made, he brings order and creates something beautiful. An image that could be seen is have you seen a person working at a potter 's wheel with a blank lump of clay, so there 's like just this big round table that just spins really fast, and there 's this big pad of clay just sitting on it. God created the clay in that shapeless form, and then he molded it into what he wanted it to look like, right? Then this happens. He creates man. He says, let us make man in our own likeness, and let, us have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So the final thing God creates is us. And he gives us dominion or rule over the entire world. He says, I have created this and made it, and it is yours to care for. Go forth and fill it. Be fruitful and multiply in it. Subdue it and take it. It is yours. Right? And we had it for like what seems like 30 seconds. Then we went and messed it up. Right? As we as people are wont to do. Give me something pretty. Within four or five days I break it. Hence why I'm not allowed to get new phones every year. Because I would just ruin them right away. Anywho. We mess this world up we sin, right? We disobey a direct call from God. We rebel against him in our hearts. And in doing so, we bring some broken stuff into this world. Let's read about some of that broken stuff real quick. In chapter 3, verse 14 of Genesis, these are the curses that God proclaims happened because of our sin and our fall. First, he speaks to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Be cold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest you reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat, forever, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so because of our sin, a bunch of things happen. We're going to zero in on a couple of them real quick. The first one is this. Because of what you have done, he told the man, the world or the ground is fully accursed. A curse has come upon the land because of our actions, right? The world is cursed. This is what we call the fall of the world, the brokenness of the world. And we see that he says that we will eventually die. We will return to the earth. And so death is one of the things that was caused by our sin. We did not die before. But now we face death because of our sin, right? And then after that, we see some other things. We see that God clothed people to subdue or hide their shame in suits of fur, or suits of animal hides. He Cut them off from the tree of life, this tree that bears fruit, that grants life. And he removed them from it and said, You cannot have a place. He drove them out of Eden, this place he had prepared for them, and set up an angel to guard it so that we could not sneak our way back in. This is the result of our sin. So in Jubilee, we see a couple of things. We see that it deals with death, and it deals with debt. It deals with slavery, and it deals with debt, not death. It deals with slavery, and it deals with debt, right? Fun story. Whenever we talk about the way that sin uh, entangles us and holds us, there are a couple of different things that are spoken about because of it. Paul, in Romans 6.23, says this. The wages of sin is death. So the debt we gain or what we earn because of our sin is death. This is the debt we owe, right? Uh, He also speaks about this debt in Colossians 2.14, if you want to read further on there. It says that we owe a debt because of our nature, right? In John 8.34, we hear this as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So we, because of the sin that is in the world and the sin that is within us, we are enslaved to sin itself. And we owe a debt, and that debt is death because of the sin that is within us and the sin that is within the world. This is what was purchased by us in Adam. Right? Now we know that whenever the year of Jubilee is proclaimed, debts are forgiven and slavery is released. But even prior to that, we know that there's this concept of a person called a kinsman redeemer, right? So a kinsman redeemer is a person who, the the person who is the closest to the one who is in debt or in slavery, is allowed prior to the year of Jubilee to come forth and pay the price necessary to release someone from slavery, right? And this kinsman redeemer, as we see in Isaiah and in other portions of the prophet's writings, took on this messianic role and this person would be willing to not just cover the slaves of their own kin this person would become a person who there would be a a figure who was the, the, the the person that the type of kinsman redeemer was pointing to and this person would pay debt for them they thought for the entirety of Israel he would cover Israel's debt and release them back to the land God had given them and then Jesus declares it and then we see something else Jesus, whenever he is walking around, he begins to speak to his disciples in a certain way, and he says things like this. "Uh, You have called yourselves my servants, but I call you friends and brother. Whenever people were speaking to Jesus and saying your mother and brothers are outside, Jesus says, who are my mothers and brothers? These are my mother and my brothers sitting here with me. Jesus began to point out that his followers were his kin, were the ones that were closest to him. And then Jesus did something important, which is paid a debt on our behalf. In Colossians 2:13 and 14 it says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses or debts, having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We owed a debt because of sin in this world. And that, did, that was paid in full by Christ on the cross. Romans 6 talks about this. Peter, 2 Peter 2 talks about this. In Romans 23 again, we see that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we owe a debt of death, but we receive a gift instead from God. Life through Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this about followers of Christ. He says, you were bought or purchased at a price. A price has been paid for you. Guys, whenever we work through, we can see that slavery, as it spoke about in the Old Testament, the way that people were enslaved to each other, was horrible. But it also pointed at the fact that we ourselves are enslaved to sin, to death, and to debt. That we are indebted because of what we have done in our actions. And God showing his goodness in releasing the people of Israel from slavery, and then calling for them to release each other from slavery, and then calling for them to release the debt that they owe to each other, and then showing that he will be faithful to this call to release people from their debts and restore them from slavery, even whenever they wholly disobey him, whenever they were taken off into captivity, All of this is all pointing forward to this concept. That he will cover our debts and release us from our slavery. That we no longer need to be a slave to sin. That we no longer need to be burdened by its debt. But instead that he paid the price necessary for us. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake God made him to be a sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, pointing out that he who is perfect, Christ, and who never deserved what we deserve for our lives, took upon himself what we deserve, death, so that we may gain what only he in his perfectness deserved, righteousness. He traded our debt for his righteousness took our debt for our sake. Fast forward to Revelation. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, there's this cloud of witnesses, people who have died bearing witness to Christ, who are singing this glorious song while seated in the heavenly realm, proclaiming the goodness of God. And it says this, Worthy are you who take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on this earth. Christ paid to ransom his people. But ransom them from what and for what? What do we gain? Let's read Revelation. We're going to read 21, 9 through 22, 5. In nine, it says, Then came one of the seven angels... Hmm. I might have skipped a part. I'll have to jump out in a second. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance... Like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, and its length and its width and its height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Side note, I enjoy the fact that he let us know that, just in case you're wondering. By human measurements, which is the same as angels. They use the same measuring sticks. Anywho, The wall was built with jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, wow, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And on the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates was made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will, be the, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into its glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and its land will be in it. And they will see his name. And his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, and there will be no need for lamp or light or sun, and the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forevermore. One second, bring up one more second here, one more section here. Revelation 21, the very beginning section, which I actually skipped when I started this. I'm sorry. It said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be their, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be crying or mourning nor pain and the former things have passed away. (sighs) So God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and we broke it and gained a debt and gained a slavery that we could never repay. And then Christ repaid that debt And bought us back from slavery. And our hope doesn't exist in what we're currently undergoing, but in what he's going to do in the future, which is this. And John speaks about how he sees a new heaven and new earth being created. You want to know how new he's talking about? In the beginning, God created. And darkness existed over the face of the seas. And everything was turbulent waters. The spirit hovered over, right? In this new heaven and new earth... He says there will be no darkness whatsoever. He even says there will be no sea, which please note, he's speaking in this way. Every time that John is talking about things he sees in the heavenly realm, he's speaking very metaphorically, right? But he's pointing out the fact that all of these things that we see as remnants of chaos and disorder will be completely wiped away. They won't exist anymore. And then we see a couple other things here. He says that there will be no curse. The curse is taken away. Where is this at? In 22.3, we see that there's no longer any curse over the land. So because of us, and because of the debt that we owe, the land was cursed, right? Whenever God recreates the world, that curse will be taken away. Uh, We see in Genesis... uh, one three, he created light. In Revelation 21.23, God is the light of the world. In Revelation, or Genesis 1.5, he created day and night. And in Revelation, there will no longer be night. He gathered the waters into seas in Genesis, and there will no longer be a sea in Revelation. So we can actually see that he's starting to bounce back and forth and showing that all the things, the disordered elements that were left in the world are completely taken away. In Genesis 1.28, God calls for man to rule over the earth and subdue it. And we certainly did not do so. In fact, we became subdued by it. We were to rule over everything that existed, and instead we allowed part of that created world to overcome us and to subdue us. We listened to it instead of saying no, basically. But in 22.5 of Revelation, we do reign forever. We step back into the place we're supposed to be in the world. In Genesis 2, God talks about the tree of life, and in Genesis 3, we are cut off from it and removed from it. We are chased out of a heavenly place that was built up for us, of a good and godly place that was built up for us, from God's presence, which was within the garden with us. We were chased out of it because of our sin. And an angel actually was set apart to keep us apart from it forever, right? In Revelation, the exact opposite happens. One of God's messengers welcomes us in. (laughs) An angel is not guarding us away from the tree of life, but is saying, look, come and see and be a part of it. And this city is created, a new heavenly place where we will reign with God and exist with God forever and walk with him just like we walked with him in Eden. We will have access to him just like we had access to him in Eden and its gates will never shut they will consistently be open for us and within that city we will have full access to the tree of life and God will say take and eat no longer will we be removed from it instead we will be given access in Genesis 3 3 part of the curse we see that we receive death because of our sin in Revelation 21.4 we see that God is removing death forever and death will not reign and so while we deal with death now we will not have to forever because of our sin the ground was cursed and it brought up thorns and thistles and it said that by the sweat of our brow and by our blood we will bring forth our food so by pain by suffering by hardship by sorrow we will exist in this world and who here cannot (laughs) who here doesn't identify with that to some extent that by sweat, toil, and hardship we exist today, right? But no in Revelation it says he will wipe away every tear from our eye there will be no more pain and no more hardship. We will have full access to God again. What we see through a mirror darkly now, what we can barely catch a glimpse of because of the world we live in, we will see fully then. And it will be beautiful. No longer will we be banished from his presence, but we will be fully able to see him face to face again. welcome back as sons and daughters of God. Whenever we see Jubilee, we can sometimes get caught up in thinking about the ways that it ties to our earthly significance, right? The things that happen to us here and now. But Jubilee points to a much greater thing that God is doing and has been doing since the creation of the world. And that is this. From before time began, this new heaven and new earth was part of his plan. And this new heaven and new earth is where we set our hopes on, and where we set our dreams upon. It's what we look forward to. Our hope is not in the here and now. Our hope is in Christ and his finished work. Whenever he will pay off fully the debt that we accrued. And grant us eternal access to Him and to His goodness. Sometimes, as followers of Christ, we can get caught up in this thought why, O oh Lord, is the world like this now? Why am I stuck in my sin? Why am I mired in death and depravity? Why, Lord, do I see death? <laughs> why does it hurt so much? Why? And if we fix our eyes continuously on the here and now, it can run us, it can trample us, right? If all we think about is the state of the world now, it can break us. This is why God, through Paul, tells us to fix our eyes on things above, on things that are not seen. This is why we are called to fix our eyes and our hope on Christ and his future glory and not on what's going on now. This is because his future is glorious, ladies and gentlemen. And whenever we can see what we are destined for, it can free us to live accordingly how we're supposed to today. Oh, what's his name? Goodness. Very famous preacher. John Piper was speaking about this topic at one point. And he was discussing why, why was it necessary whatsoever for God to give us an indication of what things might be like at the end of days, of what he is bringing forward. Because it doesn't really, like we don't actually need to know this, right? If we know God is good and we can trust him, we don't have to see anything that looks like even kind of specifics from him. Why would he give it to us? And he gave this analogy. Uh, He said, imagine that you are in a plane and you see someone step out the side door of the plane, not wearing a parachute and they start to fall towards the ground. Would you dive out after them? The answer to that question probably largely depends on whether or not you have the knowledge of whether you are wearing a parachute. (laughs) If you've got a parachute on, you might try. If you have no hope, if you know you're just going to end up splatted on the ground too, why would you go after them? Knowledge of your own salvation can free you up to live accordingly, to proclaim and to help save and help rescue those around you, to do the work necessary to proclaim Christ to the world around you. If you know where your glory lies, where your hope lies, and you know it's not in the pleasures and the happiness of this world, it can free you up to do the work you're called to do in this world, regardless of what it'll mean for you. If your only hope is in this world, you're probably not likely to be willing to die for Jesus. I'd bet. But if you realize you have greater hope beyond, if Christ bids you come and die, you'll say, okay. Let me give you a hint too. He bids you come and die. This is the call of Christ, the follower of Christ. Christ to die to yourself so that he might live recognizing the fact that your life now is not where your hope lies to offer yourself up as a vessel for him to use so that he may do the work he wants to do trusting that you will not be misthought of that you will not be misused but that he'll use you right and good And that your final hope is not in whatever good and happiness you can find here and now, but in what he's going to do for you whenever he restores and recreates this world. Do you understand? Do you get it? Jubilee points to what God is doing for you. Setting you free from the bonds of sin and death and slavery setting you free for his use I read you at one point that, that verse that said you have been bought at a price that verse is, that phrasing is used twice in the book of First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians I'm sorry and the first time it ends it says you have been bought at a price therefore honor God with your body If you recognize the weight of who he is and what he has done, your response will be to give him honor with who you are and what you do. In Galatians 2:20, we see I have been crucified along with Christ. And so when he died, I died. He paid the price that I needed to pay, and I actually get the benefit of that price paid. But then it says this, I have been crucified along with Christ and I no longer live but now Christ lives in me. He says the life he lives is not his own. He lives it for the sake of Christ. This is your call as a disciple of Christ. As you see these rhythms hit through the Old Testament and the New Testament, these rhythms of debt and slavery and redemption and salvation. As you see them as you are reading through and learning more as you are growing in your faith and as you see them in your own life because you will see rhythms of debt and slavery to sin and other things of this nature throughout your life. Remember that these rhythms point to something greater which is a God who loves you enough to free you from the debt that you owe and to free you from slavery. A God who is willing to recreate everything in the world to restore it to its rightful state and who is welcoming you into this restored creation. Any questions? As we end this sermon series on Jubilee, I want us to remember this. Our kin, our brother, our father, our groom, whenever we consider the fact that we're considered the bride of Christ, paid the ultimate debt off for us, so that we might have a restored relationship with him. This is how much he loves you. What are you willing to do for him? My thought, remember to say thank you. As we worship today, I want you to remember to thank him for who he is and what he's done, for purchasing you back from your death, from purchasing you back from your debt, from your slavery, for giving you life, and for making you anew. Thank him for his great love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Father, you have paid a debt that we could never repay so that we could earn what we could never earn so that we could have a restored relationship with you. Father, I cannot begin to express just how good and holy and righteous you are. Lord, I pray that as we worship you today, may we remember who you are and what you've done. May we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for that debt you paid off for us. Father, if there are any here who do not know or have not until this moment understood just what you've done for them, Lord God, may you allow them to be your child. May they cry out to you and beg for your salvation. And Lord, may you grant it. Father, we thank you for the debt you paid. We thank you for freeing us from the bonds of our slavery. Lord God, may we honor you with what you have purchased. It's in your name we pray. Amen.